0: You guys are too funny. (coughs) I'm sorry. Okay, now, okay. Where are we in the study of covenant? So far, um, we just kind of want to go back and reflect on the building blocks that, that are taking place here, and I don't know if you're seeing it that way or not, but, you know, inductive Bible study is about going into, when you're doing a topical study, it's about going into a subject and kind of beginning to lay a foundation of general knowledge and then taking that big picture, which we did after week one, and then honing in on each aspect or quality of it and developing our deeper insight about that one particular point, right? So week week one and even week two, we looked at the big picture of definition of covenant. So tell me what we know about the subject of covenant. What is a covenant? Okay, it is a compact or a binding agreement. Okay. Yes, it involves signs that accompany that covenant. What is the purpose for a sign? It's a way of reminding you of the covenant that was either the promise that was made or some specific quality or aspect of that covenant that was made, okay? Oh, my goodness, you missed the chair. (laughs) Are you okay? (laughs) I am so glad you're graceful (laughs) that you didn't hurt yourself. That was a very graceful fall, I got to tell you. Yeah, it was. I don't do that so well. I usually, I usually have both feet up and yeah, exactly. Well, are you okay? Yes. Okay. Thank you. I'm sorry. (laughs) All right. Um, now where were we? We were on the, uh, the qualities. Okay, give me some other qualities that you know by d- the definition because the, founda- the biggest foundation block is the definition of what a covenant is. So we have it's a legally binding agreement and it, uh, it is accompanied by signs. Okay, and the two become one. Uh, how significant do you think that part of it is? pardon yes so so by saying that Sarah are you saying that that because that is ultimately where we're going with our knowledge of covenant is our relationship with Jesus the fact that to become one in covenant is an essential thing to understand about our relationship with God right okay very good I'm going to look for a cough drop. Sorry. Any others? Any other points that you want to say are, is, is a foundational knowledge about what a covenant is? Okay. Often, it'll have a sacrifice with it. Now, does a, do, we have, do we in Scripture see that every single time a covenant is made, there is a sacrifice made? Is it recorded in every single account of, of a covenant that's made? No. Good, Kathy. Go on. Right. Often, the fact that they talk about a meal that's shared afterward indicates that there was a sacrifice made. Now, with Jonathan and David, we didn't see a meal or a sacrifice uh, mentioned, but does that mean there wasn't one, or, does, or what does that maybe mean? What have we learned about, what is it about the meal? Again, what is the quality about sharing a meal um, of that sacrificed animal what what does that convey to us what's the message in it when you eat of his flesh and drink of his blood what yes you are taking it again it's a it's another symbolic imagery of the fact that two have become one so so in in for instance the Abrahamic covenant we did see a sacrifice made right it doesn't tell us that he ate of the sacrifice but we're going to assume that he did Right, because of the fact that there was a sacrifice with Jonathan and David, there was no sacrifice. They had an exchange <coughs> of articles. Now, what did the exchange of articles tell us? Okay. There you go. Same thing. Two became one. Right, and of course, it also conveyed some other messages in the in that the identifying things that they exchanged were were what the. mm-hmm Stomson okay as right so he two became one in that case right-hmm uh, gave, gave uh, maybe it, well that would be an, it, it's not stated in the scripture but the implication could be in that the uh, the concept of that now here's what's important to know about that when there's two covenanting parties, is there particularly between people, is there always generally one who is the stronger than the other? Generally. In the case of Jonathan and David at that point, who was the stronger of the two? Jonathan. Because why? He was the king's son, right? John, and David at that point was still very young, and so he didn't have as much really on a human plane to offer. However, what were the qualities David had to offer? The Lord was with him, right? And Jonathan recognized that. And he rec- Another thing is what had probably happened, well, we know what had happened in the life of David prior to his making covenant with Jonathan. What had uh, Samuel done? He had anointed him to become what? King one day. So we see some nuances in there that also strengthened David as a covenant partner for Jonathan's sake. Jonathan knowing that one day God is going to bring him to be the next king (coughs) um, kind of gives David a little bit more equality of power in that relationship. His is yet to come, but Jonathan recognizes that. Okay, so two have become one. Even if a blood sacrifice is not mentioned in the text and they have not eaten of the flesh of that, making two one, are there other things that convey the exact same message of two becoming one if they met, like Jonathan and David and the answer is yes because we just talked about him putting on the cloak or the or the coat of Jonathan and taking on his identity right okay so big picture what we want to see about this subject is covenant is there are a variety of ways to convey the same truth message correct? Two become one, and sometimes it's seen by an exchange of clothing. Other times it's seen by the eating of a meal, right? Um, others, it's by the drinking of certain things, right? And like, In particular, uh, some of this, these um, ceremonies that we looked at in cultures around the world last week, we saw how we even see them in the world doing the same thing, the drinking of blood that has been commingled in a cup, for instance. Okay, so those are big, broad things that we learn. In covenant, two become one. um, What else in covenant that you know now at this point? Yes, mutual uh, um, responsibility to one another and mutual sharing of a life, correct? Again, it's still back to two became one right? Like, what's yours is mine, what's mine is yours. At my house, it's what his is mine, and what's mine is mine. <laughs> right, and there's a duty to defend one another, to protect one another's honor, to represent one another uh, loyally, faithfully, and correctly, to give a correct esteem of your, of your covenant partner. Are, are there any times in Scripture where we see stories Presented historical uh, records given to us of how Israel did not do right by God's uh, uh, holiness in the world that he did they did not represent him correctly. And what was God's response to that? Huh. Mm-hmm. Okay. In under the co- the covenant of the law, he would bless them if they did correct by him, and he would curse them if they did not. And so when we studied Ezekiel, for instance, what ultimately happens with God and Israel? That's right. He casts them out of the land, allows them to go into their captivity because they failed to do what they're supposed to do. That is to represent, as Susan said, represent your your covenant partner correctly, right? And, and that the two are in a sharing of, of such, that two become one and they share all belongings with one another. Okay. All right, so that was week one, and even week two also really gave us this big platform of knowledge about the subject of covenant, what it is, its, its characteristics, and its, and its identifying markers, correct? So that you can go along now at this point. Would you say that you... Feel confident at this point that when you're reading through scripture now, you're going to see certain things that are said or done, excuse me, done, that you're going to look at that and go, oh, that's about covenant. Do you think you're at that place now where you're starting to see maybe that you, at least you've got the light is on at this point, right? Okay. You'll you'll hone it as the years go by and more and more as you, you put it into practice, you will get better and better at it. Okay. So that was week one, we got that foundation laid, um, and so week two then we looked at Jonathan and David as we just talked about, and how those, those uh, same truth messages are presented, but they're presented through the, a covenant that was cut with them under different illustrations, using different um, pictures, right? Okay, then in week three, we looked at specifically the weapons and what that meant. And the weapons mean what? Protection, that we are to protect them and they will protect us. That's the, it's a mutual protection concept. When we looked at um, that in our covenant with God, how is it that we are to protect God? Obviously, we don't have the power or the strength to go up and defend God, Correct. But in our life that we are living here on this earth, how are we to protect God? What is it that we are called to do? Okay, so that he's known by, by honoring him, by walking in holiness, right? So that we uh, esteem him correctly to the world. Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, and by the way, don't just do blatant things that you know are in defiance to God's words. Um, Are there people, or have you had experiences where people who claim to know God and yet they're walking completely in defiance, and even when you show them in the word of God, this is sin, they just look at you with this blank stare. Do you think they are a person that really has an understanding of this subject matter called covenant? They really aren't. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, there's also another, I think, basic problem in a lot of Christians' lives, and that is how they view the written word of God. Um, How do you see the importance of believing that God's word is God-breathed, God-inspired, and that every word of it is truthful. How? Why is? Why do you think it's important? And how can not believing that really cause trouble for your faith? Right. Yeah. Right, because otherwise, somebody gets to pick and choose what is true and what isn't, right? And so you get to go along, plot along through the Word of God, and cherry-pick the things. You are absolutely right, Lois. They do. A lot of people do do that. Would you say that, at least for, to be gracious, that some people do that, but they only do that because they really haven't been trained? I think that a lot of people simply have not disciplined themselves or trained themselves to understand apologetically why the word, knowing that the word of God is truth, knowing that the word of God speaks and says exactly what it means. You know, in inductive study, one of the first things we we talk about and and do in, in our lesson one is say what is the literary style that we are working in, correct? So if you're looking in a book that's historical... And you go to the book of Genesis chapter 1, and God says he did this on day 1 and this on day 2 and this on day 3. And then you have believers who wanted to argue with you, well, what is a day, right? Even though right in the text it says, and there was evening and there was morning, one day. (laughs) And yet they want to argue about that. How dangerous then can that be is that it can affect how you interpret everything because if you can look at a, a, an interpretation of the word of God that's written in a historical record in one place and say, well, it doesn't mean that, but then one or two chapters later, such as all the ones that we're looking at right now, because we're still in Genesis, right, written by the same author, under the same divine inspiration, and at the same time in history, to the same audience, correct, who wrote the book of Genesis? Moses wrote. We have a record, a written word that says and Moses wrote. And and he wrote as a matter of fact the the first five books and 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 it's called the Pentateuch or the book of the law and Jesus credits it to it to him when Jesus was on this earth. There's scripture where Jesus says as it is written by Moses. Right? So You can argue with Jesus, then, I guess, about whether or not you believe that Moses wrote. So Moses wrote, when was that in history? All those things kind of play into this. Then you look at that and say, okay, if in Genesis 1 it wasn't literal, then when you get to Genesis 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, which is where we are, right? Those are the, the books we've been looking at. Then you would say, well, then those can maybe not be taken literal also. I'm making this point. Because I, I'm, I'm saying that in, in inductive Bible study, there are um, uh, pl- uh, rules, basically. There are pillars of, of truth on how we handle the word of God. And if you will do it accurately and hold to it fastly, then your interpretation is going to be more accurate. You're going to come to better interpretation. It doesn't mean that we won't still have occasionally times when we will mess up, and we will get down on a rabbit trail somewhere, and then we'll have to make a correction later and come back and go, oops, I misunderstood that, and this is why, right? If we're humble, we just confess that. As you are taking a study, a topical study, we we start by building a foundation. We look at pieces, and we put them into our, our basket, basically, of of insights and understandings. And then we set that little basket over here. Now what we're ready to do, after we've laid that big foundation of knowledge, is start to look at these little points. So we have looked at, the one is the weaponry, the idea of protecting him. We've looked in lesson four, we looked at the seriousness of covenant. Now how, did, how is the seriousness of covenant conveyed to us in the practices of covenant making? What is it that they did? what is it that happened with the Abrahamic covenant, for instance? The animals that were cut into and laid up opposite? Yes. So in that, then God passes between the, the pieces of flesh, and what was that called? A walk into death, a death to self, right? And, and now living your life for your covenant partner. Right? All right. So that was in, cha- in 4. Then in 5... Um, hold on a second. That was in 5. In 4, it was that it was a, solemnly, a solemn binding agreement. Um, how did we see that it was a solemn binding agreement? Uh, yes, we actually didn't do that, but yes, that's a very good example of that, that, um, that God takes seriously his, his plan and what he's going to do, and he protects it, correct? So if a person has made a vow to God, because we didn't really pull that one in, but still, the idea is if God is, has, has made a promise, right? and he did, right? What did, let's, go, let's start with that. What did God promise to Abraham? It's just, that's because we're going to talk about the subject of circumcision today and see how that quality of ins, how, the insights from that particular uh, practice in covenant making, what that indicates to us, what the picture of, is, and what we're supposed to learn from it, right? So the first thing we want to remember is there was an Abrahamic covenant at the basis, of um, of covenant, and what were the promises made to him? Okay, I will multiply you exceedingly, m- and making of you a great nation. Christ to make you a great nation. Now that making him of a great nation begins with, with a son, doesn't it? All right? But, and there's, so and actually there's going to be three, three, there are three basic things in this covenant that God promises to him. Two of them are actually really closely linked to one another. They almost merge into one thing. What is the other thing that He promised? Land. I'll make you a great nation. I will give you the land. And it's it's speaking of the land of Israel that God is going to give to them and to their descendants after them, correct? And there's going to come a seed who is going to be a blessing to all the nations, right? So I'm going to want to make you a great nation and a seed... um, a blessing to all nations. Now I didn't write that verbatim so don't, it's not a quote directly from the text here but basically I will make you make nations of you and that we're seeing in Genesis 17 he says that in verses 4 and also in, in verses 6 In chapter 15, if you move back to chapter 15, he says, you will have an heir from your own body, because he was complaining back in that chapter about that he had not yet had a son, correct? And then he says, however, in that passage, he refers to that seed that's going to come from your seed descendants as numerous as the star's. In in Genesis 12, he says, and in you, all nations of the earth will be blessed. So even though God is restating these promises, when you boil them all down, there's three things, a land, a seed, and who is that seed that he's promising him? Jesus himself, according to Galatians 3. So we're going to put that up here. Galatians 3 is, uh, 16 tells us that that, that that blessing is going to be Christ, right? and you will bless all nations through him. Um, In you all the families of the earth will be be blessed, Galatians 3.16, a seed, who is Christ. And Abraham's response to God when he made him these promises, he believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, I keep repeating this part of the study because this is really... I think it's kind of like, like on a teeter totter, that center post. It's the thing that kind of keeps everything else for you in balance. If you understand Galatians uh, or uh, Genesis chapter fifteen, and as long as you have the link to Galatians chapter three in your mind, I mean, you've got to learn that one by memory. Connect Galatians three with Genesis fifteen. And you will have an understanding that what God promised to Abraham through the land, the seed, and the nation, ultimately it was a promise of that coming Christ who would be the Savior to the world, through which him would all the nations of the earth be blessed, right? Okay, now, um, Genesis 17 then, we see, and this is where we're at this week, is on this thing of the adding of circumcision. So what did you learn? She asked you to make... I'll list on day one in your homework. You know, what What do you see about covenant in that particular account? What are the points about covenant that were significant? Okay, again, there was a cutting of flesh, right? A cutting of flesh. And uh, in, in where? Yes, it, li- it literally says in your foreskin. So I it gets, becomes very graphic, and I'm so sorry, Don. we apologize. <laughs> but it's important, and this is going to become a significant point of why God selected this particular sign and the location even of the sign or the scar was significant in its communication of a, of a, of a message, of a point that he wanted Israel to remember. He also said, concerning circumcision, what was it going to be in verse 11? It shall be my sign, right? It shall be the sign of my covenant. Okay? So, God declared it. He's the one that chose it. Man didn't come up with the idea. God said, this is what I want you to do. And so... In that, even though we don't have then an, exp- an expounding definition of why there and why that particular kind of a sign, does uh, Trumbull's book that Kay off- often has referred to, and I did finally get my, my book in the mail, if anybody wants to look, it's called The Blood Covenant, and I started reading through it and marking uh, with yellow highlighter in it, <laughs> Every story that she has given, every quote that she has given to us are verbatim right here in this book. So she literally quotes it directly from from the book into our homework, which is really nice. This is a really good book. And there is a lot more examples of covenant around the world that, of course, are not in our homework. There's mountains of things that Trumbull covers. But he mentions about the covenant. Tell me what he... um, what Trumbull said about the covenant mark being where it was. Do you remember? Okay. Tell me how you can see that imagery in that. Is that does that actually make sense in, in the use of the imagery of it? Yes. Because for, he, he, he said, um, from under your girdle, now I, we don't, men don't wear girdles anymore, women do, right? <laughs> well, maybe you do, <laughs> maybe. Some guys might need one. Um, <laughs> but the idea is this, thereby pledging your, yourself, not only yourself to me, but also who? The descendants after. It was going to be the mark of that sign. This is really interesting, the way that they they take you through this is to say, This shows that you're committed, and it was initially um, put into place through Abraham. So he took that that action. He obeyed God. It says in the very day that God commanded it, he did it, right? He and all his household. (coughs) (coughs) Excuse me. Now, how does the next generation take in this covenant? How do they get brought into this covenant? And who do, who makes that decision for them? <clears throat> Obviously a little 8-year-old baby doesn't get up and walk over to the table and say yes I want to be circumcised, correct? So this is very interesting because this kind of helps to explain Exodus. So we were to go and look at Exodus chapter 4 this week and to see what happened with the account of Moses as he and his wife Zephira were on their way back to Egypt. Do you remember why Moses was going back to Egypt? What was he about to do? Okay, so God God had called him to be the one who would go back to Egypt and lead his people out of their captivity, right? God had heard the cries of the people. So let's go to Exodus chapter 4, and let's talk about what we see there. What had happened or what had not... As In fact, well, let's look at it a little bit more um, analytical and say what had not happened. <clears throat> yeah, somebody had failed to circumcise their son, right? According to the covenant, what had God said would happen if you don't? Okay, if you do not... having such a hard time all of a sudden. Okay, that's in 14. I might, Martha, I might have to have you help me out. (coughs) I'm sorry, it's just the um, congestion that gets going. Thank you, I'm sorry. I feel so bad (laughs) when this happens. Okay, if you do not circumcise, the, co- the, co- the covenant has been broken. That's what God says about if you do not, if you do not circumcise, the covenant has been broken. And then what's supposed to happen to those? That person shall be Cut off. Now this is interesting because I never caught this before. That person shall be cut off. Who is the that person? The eight-day-old eight baby or the one who didn't do his job? Did you all ever notice that before? That you will be cut off means the one who didn't do their job it's not the eight-year-old baby, because as that eight-year-old baby, if he was not circumcised as he comes of age and is capable, he can step forward and have that done, right? But who's who's going to be cut off is shown to us in Exodus 4. So what happens when uh, Moses is on his way to Egypt? Yeah, th- and there were some interesting things in here. It says in verse 24 that the Lord met Moses, did you catch this, and sought to put him to death. I looked up that word met. Did anybody happen to do any word studies along the way on this? If you've done it, I would love it if you shared. No? Okay, I'm just going to take, because I found this really profound. It kind of hit me as I was looking at it last night, and I thought, this is interesting. It says that he met Moses, and that kind of sounds friendly, right? No, <laughs> the word met here means a linear movement. It is a straight line, it's like a bullet. It's like a straight line. He met him and it shows an encounter. When they meet, it's an it's a impacted encounter. It's a straight line. So it is, it is like, do you remember when you were a kid and you, you, your dad and your mom had said, go to bed, go to bed, go to bed. Finally, here you come, here comes dad. <laughs> right he is coming that is what he he met you <laughs> he came to meet you this is saying God met Moses he came to him in a direct conflict a, a direct confrontation a, a a meeting in a uh, it's it's not exactly confrontational but it is confrontational because when God met him <laughs> there you go that's the perfect example of that isn't it <laughs> he says uh, that he came, the, and then when he met him, when the two objects came together to meet, God said, What? What did God say? No, Martha, you can do it, girl. I'm so sorry. Then maybe that. Be careful. Okay, wow. thanks. Just take a sip. She's just gonna help me out. <coughs> uh, sure. sure. Thank you. Boy. Okay. Sure. I'm so sorry. <coughs> I just can't. Or, I can't talk I'm and choke at the how same how time. Yeah. You know. Okay. Okay. Sure.
1: Show me where you are.
0: Okay, I am. I'm kind of in like three places. Oh. That's how I work. <laughs> okay, what we're doing is we're just covering this first column. Okay. The picture is seen in, in circumcision. So we're talking about that Abrahamic covenant. We see that um, what God teaches us about what the, mm-hmm. the circumcision is a, about. Okay, okay. And now we're talking about Moses. Yeah, he yeah, okay. And why that circumcision.
1: Okay. And I want to hit this one. Okay, <laughs> all right. <laughs> <coughs> Oh, that's okay. <coughs> all right. Just to make sure I get, I, I want to do you justice and all the work you've done. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Oh, well. All right. So. So let's go. So this is page seventy-two of the homework, Exodus four. Um, <coughs> so. Yeah, so, and I, and the the question she had is, uh, as she said, she he met him, like, which means a confrontation and sought to put him to death. <clears throat> and so, why do we, what did y'all put as to what happens and why? What was he not doing? What was he, what do we, why do you think God sought to put him to death? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And what was Moses being called to do? He's being called to. Deliver the people and even bring the Mosaic Law and he himself wasn't keeping the covenant. So God needs to right. But then what happened that uh how do you say not circumvented but stopped? What what how was Moses' life spared, maybe? circumcision.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. So she knew she knew she knew right away what uh what hadn't been done, right? So 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 going back here Exodus 4 got Lord Lord confronted. I'll just put Lord confronted Moses because that's what Katie said uh, was like a confrontation Moses to put to death. And we see why because because he did not circumcise his son. Yeah, so that yeah, so they yeah, so Moses was the father, so he was, Moses knew, Moses knew better, right? Does that mean he was going to death uh, all his people? Or just Moses, Moses himself, right, yes. Why? Because Moses did not circumcise his son. So basically he held Moses accountable for not circumcising his son, not the son. He wasn't seeking to put the son to death, but Moses because he held him accountable because Moses should have known better. Now, I'm not sure what happened if the wife didn't want to do it and Moses let him talk, her. I have no idea what's, but, but when, you, when I looked at uh, Moses's wife, uh, she was a descendant, long story short, Jethro was her, you know, her dad. They were descendants actually of Abraham's second wife, Abraham after Sarah died, Abraham married, had three kids so they were descendants of Abraham also, so they both knew better, they both knew, so it was something that they both should have known to do, so it wasn't really unfair of God, or wasn't heavy-handed, and the other thing we have to realize is Moses calling, he's being called to deliver the people, and yet he's not even obeying, he's not walking in obedience, so he said, do not circumcise his son, and I remember thinking about that too, it makes me think of, remember, when we were talking about the Lord's Supper and how those who weren't regarding the Lord's Supper properly and being obedient, you know, their life was required. Remember, it says some of y'all are sick, some of y'all are asleep. So God has a very strict, you know, dealing. Yeah, he has high standards and holds us to a high standard. So anyway, he didn't circumcise his son, but then Zipporah did and then said, you're a bridegroom of blood, huh. which I... Didn't, I looked at commentaries on it. and It just said that was just bridegroom of blood, I guess. That was just her way of saying, you know. Unless, did anybody look at bridegroom of blood? Did you look at that? Okay, yeah, so, yeah, but she can't. is it on your notes? Is it on your notes anywhere? Okay. Okay, okay. Maybe you can explain when your voice is back. Okay, I'll see. forest circumcised. She knew what yeah yeah the other thing i thought was interesting too is that you know covenant think about it zipporah and moses were married right and so zipporah saw that god was i mean moses life was at stake where she she took action so it's like a covenant partner as his wife saying hey my husband about to be killed i know what to do and bam you know so that's another idea of yeah, circumcised la- circumcised. yeah she circumcised it through the foreskin at his feet moses feet and said this is it this is what you require god you know Because she knew, and so, yeah, she's, yeah, oh yeah, go ahead, yeah. And Katie will explain that later. I, I, I admit I didn't look up, although I did look up the background of Zipporah, so I did do my homework <laughs> in that to see that okay, they could have so known. What it's saying there is that so because Zipporah
0: was in covenant with women, what happens when a man and a woman go in covenant? She it become one.
1: So just a blood-meaning kind of... Would you let me continue? Okay. Okay. Okay, good. Okay, good. Yeah, because <laughs> you said watch me botch it up. <laughs> okay. Anyway, so so we have Exodus 4 here. Oh, there we go. Lord met Moses. Okay. Um, and we did wise circumcision. Okay. Um, let's see. I'm just making sure I stay within everything here. It's in Ezra nine and it's ten. Yeah, 10. That Ezra. 10. Okay, do you want do you want so, me? To so
0: yeah, let me let me just hang on. Okay. Um, this is co-teaching. I like this. <laughs> and I, ask, I in the mind yeah, yeah.
1: Mind. All
0: right. Yesterday when uh, we were in Sunday school class, we were talking about um, Ezra and the pe- the people of Israel as they had returned back to Egypt, or back to Jerusalem, rather, having been in their bondage in Babylon. And they were going back to rebuild. It's all about the rebuilding of the temple and such. Okay. So when they got back there, one of the things that they found was that many of the people had intermarried right with the, with the people of the land. So in Ezra 9 it says now when when these things had been completed the princes approached me saying the people of Israel and the priests and the levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands according to their abominations those of the Canaanites the Hittites the Pesarites the Jebusites the Ammonites the Moabites the Egyptians and the Amorites. Okay what had God said through Moses back in Deuteronomy 7? When you enter into the land, what? Do not intermarry with these people. Why? They will draw your hearts away from me and you will fall in basically into sin. You will begin to worship their gods. And then what is God going to have to do? Remove them off the land. Right. Okay. So that was the commandment. That was part of their covenant with God. Now, Ezra and the people come back, they get back to, it, to uh, Jerusalem, and they're ready to now rebuild after their 70 years in captivity, and what they see is that the people were not doing them. And he says in verse 2 of Ezra 9, 4, they have taken some of their daughters as wives. Now, this is interesting, because this is almost the same statement as you see in Genesis 6, where it says, and the sons of God took the daughters of men, whomever they chose right? Here it is. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race, what, what's the holy race? The, the Israelites, the Jews, has intermingled with the peoples of the lands. Indeed, the hands of the princes and the rulers have been foremost in this unfaithfulness. Now, why was that a problem? Why was it a problem that the Israelites had intermarried with Gentiles? There you go. What did he say was going to happen one day? There was going to come a seed through whose bloodline? Abraham's, through the lineage of the Israelites. What's going to happen if the Israelites commingle with the Gentiles? It's not going to be that pure line that God promised. Can it be fulfilled that... The Christ would come through the, the lineage of Abraham if Abraham's lineage is not maintained, is not protected, is not remained. It's very interesting that this picture is given to us. In the new covenant in Christ, you and I have a, a limitation put on us as well. In that one, we see it in 1 Corinthians uh, 3 and in 6, I think it is. Does it, anybody know where else? It says says that, that you are not to intermarry with an unbeliever. What does light have to do with darkness? What does Christ have to do with Beelzebub, right? Because when, for you and I, it's the same picture, the same concept. Do not intermingle. Do not commingle. The, the The one who has a covenant, see, in the case of Moses, he had a covenant. Zephira came in. What, what is she supposed to do? She's supposed to join him in his commitment to God not be opposed to him and pulling away from him. She was supposed to join him. So when she makes this confession in Exodus 4, I really think you could almost take it to the point of saying this was her salvation. She submitted to her understanding that she was now committed to a covenant with God as well, that through her marriage to Moses, she now was making commitment to God and to be obedient to God as well. And she did. She cut the foreskin of her son and threw it at the feet of her husband. So <clears throat> Ezra, chapter 9 and 10, goes on to explain that in the end what happens is the people who co-mingled, who married these women from other lands, they had to put their wives away, meaning they had to divorce them. But in doing so, they did it appropriately by the law that's given to them where God made exceptions for people who just could not live together. Even though, because of the sins of the people, he did make allowance for for that, but he didn't like it. He hates broken covenant. But in this case, this is very interesting. And here's one of those nuances about covenant. You have a covenant between two people, humans, and then you have a covenant between God and you, which trumps which. Your relationship with God always trumps. This is an example of that. The people had disobeyed God and they had made covenants with with the women of the land, the Gentiles. So you had Jew and Gentile intermingling, messing with God's plan, his promise to Abraham, his promise to all humanity, that the seed would come through his bloodline. So in order to to fix what they had messed up, they had to put away their wives and, and basically purge the sin from their midst and And then they had to move forward. Now, the scripture doesn't go into any details to say, did these men remarry then? What did they do? But it just simply says that they put them aside. They put them away. And why? I mean, at first, the first time I went through this and looked at it, I went, what? (laughs) They're getting a divorce and God's okay with this? I don't get it. Because isn't that breaking a covenant? And isn't that a problem? Wouldn't God hate divorce? And wouldn't God think that that was just horrible? And the answer is yes. But what is the higher calling, our, our, our um, relationship with God or our relationship with men? And when it comes to retaining the holiness of God's plan and the standard of God's plan, what is your higher calling? Your wanting to be married to a Gentile woman or your, uh, your re- responsibility in your relationship with God? Which has the higher calling for you. This is an example that what God says is, if your spouse tells you, you must commit some kind of a sin, your higher calling is not to your husband. It is to your God. If your wife tells you to do something that's a sin, I want you to go out, dawn, and rob a bank because I want more money. Go rob me a bank. Who are you to obey? Your wife or God? God. I mean, that's a drastic, ridiculous, I know, thank goodness you don't have to rob a bank today, aren't you glad? And the fact that I'm not your wife is helpful too, <laughs> but, uh-huh? What do you suppose to, to the children now? I know, well, so they go with their mother, and mom raises them, and in the law, they did have provisions, but it would be, it would be that there's going to be hurt, there's no doubt about it, because they sinned to begin with, it should have never happened. It's just like in our world today, when a husband and wife are divorced, what happens? They have some kind of a shared custody, there's still relationships that go on, and so forth. But these children are not of the bloodline, and they are to go back into the Gentile world with their mom and live in that world unless they become proselytes. I suppose, and it doesn't talk about that here, but they could they but God is saying that the man was the one responsible to retain the, the uh, covenant. He is the one, like Moses, was responsible. That's why God was putting Moses to death and not in Moses is the spiritual leader of our homes, uh, or Moses is the spiritual leader of his home. Our husbands are the spiritual leaders of our homes. So God held him responsible, just as he held Adam responsible with, in the uh, Garden of Eden's situation. Yes, and sending Hagar out. Exactly. Did you ever wonder why God said to him, obey your wife Sarah and send, her, send him out? Send Ishmael out send, and Hagar, and they both went out into the world. Do you remember that storyline? Why did God do that? This child shall not share in the inheritance. Through Isaac shall I name your generations. Right? So what God was doing is purging, again, Abraham, what had Abraham done in regard to Hagar? Had he jumped ahead of God? Had he taken matters into his own hand? At, as a matter of fact, at whose beckoning call, Sarah's encouragement? So again, he listened to the wife of his, uh, uh, the voice of his wife. Should he have done that? Who's the spiritual leader? He is. he is. Thank you. I feel so much better, by the way. My throat is finally good. <laughs> that passed. Thank you. Also, also, Katie, uh, the reason for that captivity goes back to when Solomon had the, the white, Yes. White oh, I know. Yes. 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 So, again, here, here, this is just a beautiful demonstration. I couldn't miss the opportunity to take you there and show you this. I know it's not one we looked at in our study, uh, but it came up in my Sunday School class yesterday morning our Sunday school class yesterday morning, for those of us who are all in there. And I just thought this is a perfect example of when you disobey God, the covenant that you are responsible to honor first and foremost is the one with God. So if there has to be a correction or a change in course of action, if something has to be repented and undone, it would be your relationship with man, not your relationship with God. You submit to God's authority in your life and there is a higher calling. This is one of the reasons why God does not like us to mess with the marriage between a man and a woman. There is a picture in it of Christ and his church, according to Ephesians 6, right? So when you mess with the marriage picture, you mess with the gospel plan. Here, with... Um, with um, um, This Ezra account, chapter 9 and 10, again, they were going to be messing with the plan that was to come of a seed through the bloodline of Abraham. This is why the covenant mark was given to them where? At the very place of paternity, because through that, the loins of Abraham, through the bloodline of Abraham would come this seed. And in order to accomplish that, They had to, in the book of Ezra, make a correction. Sadly, people were hurt. Sadly, marriages had to be dissolved. Sadly, fathers and wives and children had to be separated. It was a great loss. Their sin caused a great pain. But, but the standard of God's holiness, the standard of His plan, was what would not be violated. Isn't that amazing? When you get, when you understand covenant, there are so many passages that you come to that if you'll just say, oh yeah, covenant, oh yeah, this was the promises, oh yeah, when God promised this, it was a promise of the gospel. He had presented to Abraham, according to Galatians 3 6, 7, and 8, he presented to him the gospel. Don't mess with the gospel right? Don't mess with God's plan. So here we see an example of where the, the correction of course of action had to be between the relationships that were made with the husband and wife in Ezra. Okay, same thing though with uh, Moses. A correction had to be made. Moses had not circumcised his own son, right? So Zephira steps in and does this. What does that tell you about what Sapphira knew? She knew what was supposed to have been done. I, we talked about this the last time we, that I taught this, and I thought, I can just hear the conversation that probably preceded this event that's recorded that took place between Zephira and Moses. Zephyra says, no, 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 he's just a baby. You can't cut him. You can't. No. I don't know if you guys went through this with your own children, but even when I had my son circumcised, you know, it was a real hard thing for me. I mean, I cried. You know, I sat in the hospital and cried because I just thought, oh, you're going to hurt him. But, you know, we did it. It's tradition for us to do this still to this day. Is it necessary today? No. Why? The Christ has come. The seed is here. The sign is no longer needed. We have the fulfillment of it, right? But is it a sin to do it? No. No, you can do it if you want to. It's just fine. But the sign for us is not for the same purpose any longer because we have the seed here. But in the days of Moses, that seed was to come. They had a sign and a mark in the flesh. And, and it, because the carrying forward of that responsibility was in the hands of the spiritual leader of the home, it was put in the, the, the body of the flesh of the man. And it was put in the place where the reminder would make most sense. To remind them through your bloodline will come a seed who will be a blessing to all the world. Beautiful picture, right? I love it. Okay. So any questions on the picture of circumcision and why that particular thing was done? Everybody seems to be good with it. When a Jewish child is circumcised, it is commonly said of him that he is caused to enter. This is understood since he is circumcised at eight days old. Caused to enter because dad is the one responsible to do it. So when it says, if he breaks it, this covenant, then he shall be cut off, right? That person shall be cut off. It's the father who should be cut off. And we see that demonstrated with this account here with Moses, where God was going to cut him off. Yes? No, because we're going to do that when we get into the, the, the new covenant. We'll, do, we'll be doing, we have to get into the new covenant first, but we will. Yes, we will, certainly. And hopefully we can link the idea of this circumcision. We will, because I remember we did do it. it it's in here. Just not yet. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. I think that's all I have on that. Do you have any questions about circumcision or its sign or its purpose? You understand it's, simp- it's a beautiful pictorial reminder, kind of like the rainbow in the sky, right? Every time it rains, God gives them a rainbow, and he says, this is to tell you that I will never again flood the entire earth to destroy all flesh upon the, on the earth. You can count on it. So, every time it rains, don't get worried. I'm going to give you a rainbow to remind you that I said I will not ever do that again. Right? So, signs have a a direct correlation to what they're linked to. And so, that circumcision is linked to the paternity bloodline that a seed would come through the bloodline of Abraham. Okay, that's done. Now, we're going to go back very quickly and we're going to look at Jonathan... And david 's Covenant, she asked us to look at oh, all kinds of for, I know, we almost had to read the whole Bible didn't we? First Samuel 18, 19, 20, 23, 31, also 22, 24, 26, 27. I mean, there was a bunch of verses. So rather than hit on everything, what we want to do is just in general, talk about how we see Jonathan 's faithfulness. They they cut covenant with one another, correct? They exchanged the robes and the weapons, and then they went about living life in covenant to one another. What happens very shortly after the covenant is cut between these two men? What's shown to us in Scripture? Uh-huh, and so right away, what does Saul do against David? He tries to kill him, okay. So almost immediately, um, um, Saul try, attempts to kill, he attempts to kill David. Fortunately, David is able to escape, correct? Um How do you think David, though, was feeling about this whole scenario at that time? Confused? For one thing, if you read the whole storyline, you see that um, it was Saul that brought him into his house to serve him. It was Saul who had said that he loved him and that basically because David would come in and play music for him and so forth. What was the problem with Saul? What was so disturbing in his spirit? What was going on there? There was so, so much jealousy because when David went out, what would happen? He would have all these, yep, he would have success after success. And so, because Saul had killed his thousands, but David, what? His tens of thousands. And the people would sing, and Saul became jealous. And his jealousy was a protectiveness of what he possessed, which was his kingship and his, his ruling, right? Right. So he was afraid, basically, of David's power as he was, his, his popularity, basically, among the people was rising. Okay, so Saul attempts to kill David. What does Jonathan do? He protects. Now, how does he protect David? Yeah, and how does he do that? What, what, is it that, what are some of the things that he did? Okay, so he warn he warns David, right? What else does he do? Okay, I'm saying no. You're right. You, you, I had two people going at once. I'm sorry. Yes, and that was when they cut their covenant. Now. When, when um, Saul begins to attack David shortly after that covenant is made, Jonathan begins to protect him, right? And what we see is the, one of the things, one of the ways he protects David against his father is he warns David when his father is about to do something. If his father has um, said, go kill David, he says, David, hurry, get away, right? So he warns him. What are some other things that Jonathan does for him? It's right. He intercedes. He really basically tries to <coughs> sway him to reunite and to see the good in David and to see that David is not his enemy and that David has actually always done good for him, right? Okay, what else do we see? How did what did David what was David's response? Okay, yeah. So David is very confused about Saul's actions against him, although I would say he probably shouldn't be because what has happened with David prior to this? He's been anointed to become king, and he knows this, and Saul knows this. So this is an issue that's coming up between the two of them. So why does, well, first of all, what does David do? We, we, what is his response when Saul tries to kill him? David just flees. He flees. Very good. He continues to honor Saul as God's anointed. Okay, that one is super important because it kind of brings up a, an issue here. We see on the one hand that in this relationship that Jonathan's faithfulness to protect David as his covenant partner, and then in and then also David on his part is to try to respond to the attacks but still also be faithful to Jonathan, right? In the end, what David keeps saying in the text to us over and over is what is his reason for not killing Saul. Why does he, how many times did David have opportunity? Oh, at least, at least two or three different times where he, one was when he went into a cave. I thought that one was pretty funny. He went into a cave to relieve himself. And David is in there and and while he is busy. He cuts the hem of his uh, cloak off, correct? And then when he gets far enough in the distance and he shouts and he waves the cloak and he says, look, I could have taken your life, right? But I didn't. But David's statement in scripture is not, for the sake of my covenant partner, Jonathan, I did not harm you. Right? What does he say? Because you are the Lord's anointed far be it from me that I should touch the Lord's anointed. Correct? So what does that tell you about David's understanding about priority of covenant? Did you guys notice that? that Because it was interesting to me, the way Kate couched our question to us was, how do you see David being faithful to Jonathan? Well, every statement that's given to us is John, David did not do it because he was God's anointed. He was the anointed of the Lord. So I got to thinking about that and I went, you know, that is very much like two or three other places just this morning where we've talked about who, whose covenant trumps whose in scenario and which one is recorded for us in the text. We know that David has a covenant with Jonathan and for that reason alone, do you think he would have touched the king? no because he had covenant with the king, with his son but he only mentions the relationship between david and who god himself and he says my highest accountability is to whom god i thought that was interesting i thought it was interesting things <coughs> yes yes he said st- and why do you think he does that does that tie into our covenant stuff. There you go. Two have become one. And he is recognizing that verbally. My father, right? And he, and he probably did have a fond affection for him. He had been his armor bearer for years, several years. And then later he went out and fought war on behalf of him. But he had been in the court of the house And because he was in covenant with David, he had this special relationship with Saul as well. And he kept bringing, and all these little tiny statements like calling him father indicate to us his heart. Does this tell you why God calls David a man after my own heart? A man after God's own heart. He honors covenant. And when it comes to two covenants, both being in place that affect the same person, which is Jonathan and his family, David recognizes his highest calling is to who? God, his covenant to God. It does not mean he was ignoring his covenant with Jonathan. We're going to see that next when we look at Mephibosheth. But what we see here is the highest calling of covenant when you, because are you and I in covenants of any kind that calls us to an accountability with a human being. Do you, are any of you in a covenant right now with a person? Yeah, well, um, sometimes there's friendship covenants too, though, between friends, depending on how close you have in friendships. But <coughs> generally, it would be your husband and wife, right? So if you have a relationship with a husband and wife, Or if you also have a covenant with a friend, you may not have cut a covenant, but it's an understood covenant. I have some people in my life that it's an understood thing that we are in this fight of life together, that we are close, that we have this deep friendship, an abiding friendship where we will protect each other and support one another, come to each other's help or aid at any time. And quite honestly, the real calling is that we all do that for one another The highest calling in our relationship with God is, and the truth of what we're really learning as we're studying this, is we are in covenant with one another. Whether we recognize it or not, you need to recognize it. But still, there are friends like Jonathan and David where you have a a really deep friend. So either way, you have relationships with human beings and you have a covenant calling with them. But when push comes to shove, which is the higher calling of covenant? Your covenant with God, God is the one who first and foremost you are responsible to. Is that kind of cool to see that in this passage? So it's one of the things I think that's brought out for us. Although I don't think Kate quite asked the question in the way that helped. you really see that? But when she asked you to write down, um, why did she asked the question? Why did David not kill Saul? right? Why did he not retaliate against Saul? And the answer was, what would, did David keep saying? Saul is, Saul is God's anointed. So what does that tell you about David's understanding about covenants? He put God first. God's his covenant with God came first. He continues to honor Saul, God's anointment. So covenant with God, mm. I'm just going to put this on here, covenant with God, and covenant with Jonathan, Um, David did not, he did not touch, I can't spell, touch the Lord's anointing. So, in my notes, I put on here, David was in covenant with Jonathan, and so he would not have killed Saul. But sometimes men do break covenant. Now, if he was only in covenant with Saul, I mean with Jonathan, rather, if he was only in covenant with Jonathan, and Saul kept coming up against him to kill him, think of this, what if it was Abimelech? And in Abimelech's dad, I don't know who that, that even is, But if he kept trying to come up against David, against David to kill him, do you think there would be a possibility that David could break covenant if the threat is his life is in danger day in, day out, year by year by year? How long did this go on? For years, right? So do you think there's a possibility in human human, um, reasoning that at some point, sometimes people can break covenant? Do we? Yes. But the interesting thing with this storyline is what God showed us is there were actually two covenants in play here with the same people all involved. So it's almost like there was a double reason for David to not touch the king's anointed. He was in covenant with Jonathan, but he was also in covenant with God and covenant with God always trumps. Okay. So that's why that's the one that is mentioned in the text not David. So if that was confusing to you, you might want to make yourself a note in your scripture that says the reason he mentions the the covenant with God as the reason he doesn't kill him is not because he doesn't have a covenant with Jonathan, but because God's covenant is the trumping of the two. It's the heavier hand in the two. So it was beneficial basically for David. I think in a way, (coughs) excuse me, it was interesting that, um, God set a scenario in place here in David's life that gave David a double portion reason to not touch the Lord's anointed. And in doing that, he was disciplining David and teaching David and actually even protecting David in a way, don't you think? Because David now had two reasons, not just Jonathan, but Jonathan and God to obey God. And it gave him the strength and the stamina and the determination and the discipline to do as God would want him to do, which is to not ever touch the Lord's anointed. Yes. He's really teaching David a lot of things here, isn't he? Be patient it's coming. Wait on the Lord. Very good. Yeah. But having two covenants working on David so that David would comply with holy living, holiness before God. That's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very good. Actually, you know, it's also is very interesting as you take that to the next step. Do you remember at the end where Saul and David finally has shamed him enough? What did Saul demand of David? Saul, exactly, Saul requested, I mean, remember in this storyline late, does everybody remember this part, where Saul says, promise me that you will show only loving kindness that you will not destroy my descendants from off the land, really? In 24, yes, it is in 24, 24, uh, 6, I think he says, far be it, fr- on. Well, maybe it wasn't in 6, um, what verse was that? Okay, so 24, 21 to 22. Okay, good. Yeah, that's right. I have it here, 21 to 20. So Saul confesses he knows David will be king, and he asked David to swear that he would not cut off Saul's descendants. Was it a regular practice for kings to cut off his predecessor's descendants? So it's very interesting that Saul requested that of him. And in that same verse also, what does Saul actually confess that he knows about David? That he has been anointed to be the next king and that he will be. The, he doesn't even say, I know you've been anointed. He says, I know you will be the next king. So he actually makes a confession there at that moment of, of acknowledging that God had anointed him and he knew that was going to happen. And if nothing had convinced him, it should have been all these times through the years how many times that David slipped through his fingers and and there's a couple of times where the scripture says and God did not allow David to fall into the hands of Saul So you see God's protection on David and Saul certainly had to have seen that and then how many times did Saul actually fall into the hands of David? two or three where he literally could have taken his life but he did not and this has to have also shown uh, Saul some things so it was an, actually an easy vow for David to give to Saul at that point, right? Saul says, please don't harm my descendants. Why was that an easy vow for, for David at that moment to take? <laughs> he had already told Jonathan, I will, I will show loving kindness to all your descendants. So he'd already was in a covenant with Jonathan that he would do no harm to Jonathan's family. So when Saul said... Vow to me, promise to me that you will not hurt my descendants. Well, okay, (laughs) sure, no problem. (laughs) And so he does. (laughs) But I think that was pretty interesting. So here we see Jonathan and David both being faithful. Now, the last part of this is we see is with the storyline of Mephibosheth that we looked at. Very, very interesting. Mephibosheth. In 2 Samuel 9, that was on day five of your homework, Let's see if I can find my, my observation sheet here, okay, yes it is on page 79, I was looking for my observation worksheet, I don't see it, here it is, I got it, okay, fortunately I did clip art on my sheets, it helps a lot, <laughs> I can find things easier, okay. Um, how does Second Samuel 9 set up what's taking place in the record in this particular chapter? What do you see stated in those first three verses that sets you an understanding of why this particular uh, record about Mephibosheth is even recorded? What does it say? Okay, so that's in verse 3. Is there any one of the... I thought one said Jonathan. Oh, okay, for Jonathan's sake. Okay, yes, I'm sorry. Okay, yes, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. But then he repeats it in verse 3, and do you see what he says there? For the house that I may show kindness anyone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God. So actually, in this chapter, he actually makes mentions of both his vows, the one to Jonathan and the one to Saul, that he will show loving kindness to the house of Saul. So isn't that interesting? I don't know if you caught that or not, but it's kind of cool because he's making a passing reference to the fact that he has made a vow to Jonathan and he has made a a, a vow to um, Saul and in both cases, it it affects the same people, the house of Saul, right? And then, so what happens is he sends out word um, looking to see if there's anyone left of the house of of Saul that he might show what? Loving Loving kindness. Here's our word again, that covenant word, loving kindness. I love that, that that We now know that that word literally is a link to an understanding about the subject of covenant. Anytime you see, for instance, in the New Testament where it says, they will know you are my disciples by your love. That's that loving kindness. When you show loving kindness to one another, that's a a covenant term of relationship with one another. I love that. All right, so in here, what happens? What, he sought to find a descendant, and what happened? One was found in verse 6. Mephibosheth is found, and they bring him to him. And then what happens? What does David do to show loving kindness? I loved that. He literally makes him as if he's a son. And it says, that he eats with him at his table on a regular basis. He sits him at the table among his other sons. So he makes him as if he's a son. Isn't that cool? So he restores to him that which had belonged to Saul. Wow. I mean, that is a loving kindness thing, isn't it? Because technically he had inherited all this. This was his now, but he actually sought to make sure that for the sake of his covenant promise that he would show loving kindness, that he did this for the sake of Mephibosheth. There's one quality about Mephibosheth that they keep mentioning. What is that? That's, he was lame in both feet. (laughs) Now, what does that have to do with the storyline? Does anybody know or does it, can you understand how um, David's actions on his behalf might, some of that might tie in? And And that's how he became lame in both feet. So it tells you how that happened, right? in some ways yeah because well he was being he was being whisked away yes Lois (coughs) absolutely right it's really an interesting picture because in the the hierarchy of the royal kingdoms and the, the way that the royals treated one another in those days. Mephibosheth should have been killed by David, but he wasn't. His life was spared. Mephibosheth was a, was a person who was lame in both feet, so he had a real disadvantage. So when David reached out to, to show loving kindness to him, one of the first things he does is assign to him people who will work on his behalf to make provision for him people who will farm the land, people who will bring in the crops, people who will care for his household. And, and it was quite a number of people, wasn't it? It was a pretty nice-sized staff. As a matter of fact, when I looked in the commentaries on it, it said it was a staff of, of um, sufficient uh, quality or, or size uh, equal to that of a royal. So he got what a royal would normally get from a father to sons or nephews or whoever was entitled and that what he gave to him was equal to his uh, position as a son, as if he were a son. I thought that was pretty cool. So he, he does that, he, he gave um, Mephibosheth rights of a son to eat at his table and um, that therefore he would also be taken care of, wow. So, do you think David fulfilled his obligations in covenant here of loving, showing loving kindness to the generations, descendants after? So, what Kay did is she kind of mixed a couple of different things in one lesson. This is a descendant um, through through which he had a responsibility to, but she also showed us here in the beginning that circumcision t- uh, was a was pictorially given as a reminder that through descendants, something else was gonna be fulfilled yet. That was the promise of that seed. So she mixed kinda two things. One is our obligations, just in generality. If we have a covenant that extends to the family, and many covenants do, then there is a responsibility to do so. We saw Jonathan be faithful in his side of it up to the point when he died. And then we see David, even after Jonathan's death, to continue to fulfill his covenant responsibilities and his vows to Jonathan. We also see in there this, this other teaching that when a, when a covenant must be obeyed, the higher calling of covenants is that with God. And so so uh, with... Um, David, every time he makes mention of the fact that he does not attack Saul, it isn't just for the sake of Jonathan's covenant, but first and foremost, it's because he's in covenant with God. That's pretty pretty good teaching, isn't it? Pretty good life lessons in there for you. Anyone have any thoughts on that, on how that applies in our life? Your life? That's exactly right. You know, this is an important point, Carrie. We go into business partnerships on a regular basis, and they are covenant. You have to be careful who you go in covenant with. Go ahead. Wow, abortion because they can use both bonds, and I stood against it.
1: And um everybody was very surprised because they thought, you know, lawyer
0: should be all for this stuff and everything else. Well, see that's what society teaches for sure, right? Good for you. That was wow. relationship And I said I wanted, you know, time to go work at a pregnancy center. And eventually I just went half-time long, you know, working
1: from home. Mm-hmm. And they kept saying, have you ever regretted your decision because you were being primed uh, to be head of this division or mm-hmm. anything? And I said, no, I
0: have never regretted it. Yeah. Wow, Carrie, what a testimony. You, do, do you ever think about who was watching you in that and wonder how your commitment to God? And, and I mean, because this is a morally based decision. This is saying, this is what D- David did. I mean, you think about, in his world, it was about politics. It was about him coming to the throne. It was about him becoming, you know, the leader, the king. And it was all politics, and in politics of that day, the normal thing would be if you if you got your your opponent, your your evil nemesis in your clutches, you would, of course, you would kill him. Do you remember the conversation with the men that he had a conversation with who were with him in one of the accounts, and they wanted to kill him? And look, and and their their response was, "Look how the Lord has put him into your hands." Now, David didn't see it that way. Why? What do you think was going on there on God's part of this? What was God doing? There you go. Do you think this might have been his Abraham on Mount Moriah's moment of a testing to see, will you honor me, David? Will you not touch the Lord's anointed? After all, you are my anointed, right? And even when when Saul did finally die, you know, in those. right well actually he didn't kill him he only said he did he actually didn't Saul killed himself because he was afraid in that moment he actually didn't kill him but when he went to give the report because he thought it would make him look better he lied and said I killed him and here's his you know his things and David said look um he said I killed a man for killing Meph- not Meph- uh, I think was his name was that his name on his bed Correct, the son of Saul of Saul on his bed. He was the one that was he was co regioning with him at one time. Let me look in here and see if I can get his name, Ishbaseth. It's in Second um, Samuel two. So um, David told the men of Jabesh Gilead also because they had shown kindness to Saul by burying him. David would show loving kindness to them, but those men had killed him on his bed and David killed him for that. And David said, look, if I killed men for killing the son of the king, what do you think I'm going to do to you who who claims from your lips that you killed the king, even though he really didn't. <laughs> that, but he thought he was doing something that would put him in favor with the king. This is all political. So in a way, Carrie, this your story of politics and kind of the intrigues that were going on in your business covenant is very much the same as what's going on here. It's, and, and it comes down to a moral choice of who are you going to obey, your covenant with God or your aspirations in life. David was given many opportunities to put to death Saul, but he chose not to because he had fear of God. He had respect of God. He had honor of God, right? And he knew that, that this would be sin for him. As a matter of fact, when he cut the, the hem of his garment off in that cave, what happened? He felt so guilty, felt so guilty for even touching the, gar- the hem of his garment that he then... And then he has another opportunity later and comes down into the, the camp, into the middle, and it says the Lord put a deep sleep on them so that they were able to come in, and he took his sword right was a sword and then he comes out and then he stands at a distance and again says see I had opportunity and I didn't what um this storyline of David and how God is preparing his heart he's teaching him life lessons of value that were important for him he was teaching him to honor God above all things teaching him to respect the the calling. it kind of, you know, even in our world today, Daniel says it. Who is it that raises up kings and puts kings down? It's God. Do not touch the Lord's anointed. Now, God sometimes even anoints kings that are not godly, and he anoints men to work on his behalf like King Cyrus did, even though they never knew him, it says. The scripture says, and he never knew me, but I anointed him to be the one through whom I would work and do. He did the same thing with with, um, Pharaoh in Egypt, and he worked through him to perform miracles in order to reveal himself to his people. God is working in your life. He's working in my life every single day to refine us, to teach us to walk in holiness, and above all, to honor our covenant with God. So in order for you and I to do that, we must, number one, know what the principles of holiness are. We need to understand without a shadow of a doubt, our first and foremost calling in life is to honor our covenant with God above all. He trumps every other covenant, every other relationship that you have. And scripture in the New Testament says that he who will not hate father and mother and sister and brother... Pick up his cross daily and follow me. He's not worthy of me. And that's what that's talking about. It's talking about priority of relationships, priority of of covenant responsibility. Who is your highest calling to and who is your strongest commitment supposed to be to? And when God takes you through a testing, do do you pass the test? Did David pass the test? Yeah, I think he did doesn't mean David was not perfect, however. We do know that there were some shortcomings on his part, but he did well.
1: The other side of that coin of God is our covenant partner and we are
0: responsible. <coughs> God is our covenant partner and he yes. is good. Absolutely. He only are good and our best. Right. And as we follow him and his ways, that's what he's trying to give us. Right. Right. So absolutely. I mean, we only have been looking at it, this from the side of our response and our responsibility. You know, and we, as we as we walk, the, the New Testament is loaded with scriptures um, and teachings that talk about our walking by faith and not by sight and uh, the putting ons and the putting offs and how we're to be obedient. All this is about sanctification. What we're seeing here in this is the sanctification walk in covenant. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. God sealed him in that moment. It says it was the day of his salvation in that moment. Righteousness was imputed to him. And then God cut a covenant with him, and when he cut covenant, with covenant comes responsibilities. There's a relationship that's you, you are absolutely assured, and the covenant is given... according to Hebrews 6, as an assurance to the vows that were made. God is promising you these things. You and I have promises that we're still waiting on from God, right? Things about eternity and about the the rapturing of this body and the receiving of a new body and eternity, a a thousand-year reign on this earth with Jesus Christ ruling and reigning from Jerusalem. And you and I being with him, we are going to come back with Jesus on white horses, Arrayed in our, our robes that have been given to us, the robes of righteousness, which are, are, the, are the good works or the good deeds of the saints. I love that. How white is your robe and how big and long? I remember Kay talking about, it. she talked about coming back as the bride, and she says some brides have very modest wedding gowns. She says, but don't you want a wedding gown that's big with a train that goes forever? (laughs) And that was her idea of encouraging us. I thought, I don't know. It's all about taste. (laughs) But the truth message in that is that you're to work hard to make your gown as beautiful for God as possible because the whole point is your works are His glory, He receives the glory. When you come before him, the crowns that are given to you for, for being the overcomer and the one who did well, those crowns are going to be thrown back at his feet. What will you have to give back, right? A covenant with God, it is a, it is a two-sided relationship. We absolutely, without a doubt, we understand God is powerful. He will protect us. He is, you know, he's ever-present. He's, you know, he's the great provider. All we have comes from him, right? All, All good gifts come from God. But on our part, what are we responsible for? And that's kind of what we're talking about here. We're seeing the responsibility that you and I have in relationship with God. And in these things that we look at here, we're talking about the covenant relationship of the family of God. I have a covenant relationship to every one of you to respond in the same way Jonathan did and the same way David did, and particularly with David where he says he would not hurt the Lord's anointed. I am not to hurt or touch the Lord's anointed. Who are the Lord's anointed in this room? Every one of us, I pray, Right? Every one of us who've made a relationship with Jesus, entered into that relationship with Jesus Christ, we are anointed by his spirit. We are one family now. Two have become one. And in this case, what is it? 25 have become one (laughs) or 20 or however many are here today, right? We are one because we have been joined together in Jesus Christ. And we have a relationship that requires that we put one another's needs above our own. And that's what we see with the examples of David here, particularly when he got to Mephibosheth. He, he wasn't just laxated. He didn't wait for Mephibosheth to just show up, and then he would say, oh, I, I'm, let me do something nice for you. But he actually pursued him. And I love that part of the storyline. He sought for someone to be a blessing to, that he could honor his friend Jonathan, and that he would honor also what he promised to Saul. For you and I, it's all about honoring also God, right? You will know they are my disciples by their love. He absolutely was, that's right. That's right. All right. Any other points or thoughts about what we saw this week? How do you feel about covenant at this point? Have you been impressed with how the value of it and the importance of this particular subject? This is a study, of subject I think that needs to be studied by everyone. It's just, and there's so many little points to it, huh? All right, well, good job, y'all. I will see you not next week because we are off, but the following week. I didn't, I didn't know we had a week off. I'm, how nice. I, I get to sew or something this week.